Our next guest has written an interesting paper entitled How Pandemic Modeling Failed Policymakers and How to Do Better. He is both an engineer and a physician who has combined disciplines to bring innovation to the health and life sciences sector. He is currently professor of medicine and adjunct professor of law at the University of Toronto. A real pleasure to welcome our guest, Dr. Harvey Schiffer, to the program. Dr. Schiffer, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning to you, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, this is a very provocative stuff because, of course, we're just becoming used to the idea of modeling. Here in British Columbia, Dr. Bonnie Henry, our chief medical health officer, who's doing an outstanding job of keeping us in line through all of this COVID stuff, has uh, treated us to a few sessions of modeling. But she's been very, very forthcoming each and every time we've had, and there have only been a few of these modeling sessions, Dr. But she's very, very careful to identify this is just a snapshot. This don't, in other words, what she's telling us, here's, here's another way to look at the numbers and the research, but don't place too much uh, value on what you're seeing and then proceeds to give us the models. Is that a, a, an appropriate way to present a difficult new subject to a lay person's audience? Well, it's always a, a great challenge doing it, and I think she's doing a spectacular job. I agree. Uh, you know, if genetics were good enough, we ought to clone her. Um, in the first instance, this is an entirely new phenomenon. There have been pandemics before. There have been epidemics before. There always will be. They'll continue coming. But each one is different, and we learn one from the other. Uh, there hasn't been one like this. The uh, properties of the, of the particular virus are different. The communications between people is different. The place of origin is different. The way it manifests is different. So we build models based on the past experience, but they have to have very wide boundaries around them, and they will change as we learn more. So, for example, when the uh, information started coming out of uh, Wuhan, China. Uh, the concern was that the death rate was 30% or more. Didn't quite understand how it was spread. We weren't really clear who the target population was. And look how far we've come in a remarkably short time to understand the genetic characteristics of the virus, right. the target population. We're getting more and more comfortable understanding its pattern of spread, but you're still seeing uh, discussions, is it droplets or is it aerosols? Do we have masks? Do we not have masks? Mm -hmm. And that's just the way new knowledge comes into being. You know, we're not certain. Science isn't linear. And often uh, the public doesn't understand that. And you sort of say, well, you know, six weeks ago you said you don't have to right. wear masks. And now you say you have to. Science must be dumb. Mm -hmm. No. Good science is humble, it's honest, and it's constantly correcting. And I think that's what Bonnie Henry has communicated remarkably well. And we've learned, uh, just as you, as you point out, just in the short span of time, because it feels that we've been locked down for years, but it's only been a few yeah. months. Uh, and, uh, but we have learned, for example, uh, we, the first 
target group. You referred to target groups, doctor. So we, we, we came to understand fairly early in the game here in Canada that the most likely vulnerable group were seniors, persons in their 60s plus, and individuals with compromised immune systems. Those would be the most vulnerable uh, people in our population. And now, here we are many months later and looking at this outrageous surge in cases in the United States. And noting, for example, that a a significant number of of sick people now coming to hospitals are uh, in the 25 to 35 year uh, age group, a completely different demographic group altogether. Well, that's right. And it's part of the learning process. You know, there always, (laughs) pardon me, there always was a small trickle of these people. And you had to assume, though, and we're gradually piecing it together, that there is some immunological quirk that makes them vulnerable where their buddy at the drinking party was not. Sure. All right. It wasn't just the dose of the virus. There's some element of that vulnerability. What we're gradually learning about, <laughs> excuse me, but what wasn't entirely clear is how many people are being inf- infected. And in the United States, because of real failures in public policy, you've got enormous numbers of people infected. So in time, we're going to learn, is the proportion about the same? Or is it because, you know, we've just seen so many more people? Or has the virus uh, mutated in some way that changes its properties? Or in the American population, Uh, does the mix of, if you will, genetic vulnerability from an immune perspective, is it a little different than, say, a population in Italy or Japan? And I suspect this is the, all part of the learning process. I was going to say, I suspect ultimately, Harvey, the answer is going to be all of the above, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure you're right. So uh, just before we take the break, because I want to talk about disrespecting science, and Mr. Trump seems to be uh, leading the pack there, and uh, quite the confrontation yeah. that seems to be evolving between him and Dr. Yeah. Fauci. Uh, but your, the title to the piece, How Pandemic Modeling Failed Policymakers and how to do better. How, in fact, were policymakers failed by the pandemic modeling? Well, I think the most important part of that is that the scope and scale of this was so large that the knock-on effects became really very important. You know, if you look back in Canada to when we had SARS a bunch of years ago, uh, this was a nasty disease. Uh, Its uh, mortality rate is was considerably higher, fortunately fortunately for now, than COVID is. However, it wasn't, uh, it turned out to be that infectious. And so it was controlled in small pockets. So the effects on the economy, the need to knock down, to, to lock down a whole society didn't become apparent. Right. So now you've got a bug and this bug thus far does not appear to be as lethal as, for example, 1918, which a lot of people refer to. But this bug spread around the world in no time. We were appropriately very, very concerned. It looked like it could affect everybody. So what we had to do was, in effect, shut down the society in many respects. Right. So among other things, cancer patients weren't getting treated. People couldn't travel to see relatives. Uh, I suspect 
depression uh, went up because people were locked in small apartments. All these kinds of things, which have major social impact, including effect on life, um, you know, were set aside because we were dealing with this virus. Right. So the basic pandemic model is time-tested and immensely valuable, but it's like all sorts of things we've, we develop, you hit upon its limits. And the limit is the rate of spread, the extent of spread, and the knock-on effects. So now you build the model differently and say, okay, how are we going to prepare for the next one? Because I think one of the few certainties out of all of this is this will not be the last pandemic. Joining us from the University of Toronto is Dr. Harvey Shipper, who has uh, written a very interesting piece entitled How Pandemic Modeling Failed Policymakers and How to Do Better. And one of the things, one of the byproducts of all of this pandemic and all of the information, a superabundance of information if you watch cable TV too much, uh, is that, and, and you've alluded to this already, Dr. Shipper, and I think it really bears uh, to some discussion, the, the potential for enormous public disrespect of science, which you say is not well understood by the general public, which le- uh, leads for moments such as we're seeing now between the President of the United States and his chief medical advisor, Dr. Fauci, who are uh, openly disagreeing with each other. They haven't had a face-to-face conversation in months, and the President is now using uh, the science as advanced by Dr. Fauci and his colleagues. You know, they, Well, first they told us to not to wear a mask, and now they tell us they're mandatory come on guys and using that sort of language to really undermine science in many ways and of course to his political advantage uh we don't see it to that extent here in canada but we do see it oh yeah and and, um it's always been the case you know uh and science isn't perfect it has its own arrogances and its own dismissal of of other points of view. Uh, Science is built around the notion that you make decisions, you come to understandings based on what you can see and what you can measure. Right. And one of its shortcomings is if it can't see it, it therefore can't measure it, so it tends to disregard it. So there are many examples in science where you come up with an idea and you ignore everything else that doesn't fit and you become single-minded and you kind of lose your perspective. And great science is humble science. And, and, you know, back to Bonnie Henry, who who says, hey, this is what we know. We we must continue to learn more, Mm -hmm. find new tools to see things, but bear with us we understand that there are limits to what we can do. And given that we don't know, we are making a decision to be very cautious. In a way, uh, what Mr. Trump is doing, and I don't want to get into discussions of Mr. Trump, is saying, well, we don't know, so I don't think it's justified to take the risk of being that cautious. Right. Open the community, keep the economy going. That's the struggle, all right? And, and when you look at the pandemic that we're facing, 
different perspectives see the same, if you will, element in different elephant in different ways. The infectious disease-focused person says, "I got to eliminate this coronavirus." Mm-hmm. The public health person says, "I'm going to look at all of the health-related things, access to the emergency treatments for cancer and other things." The economist looks at it and says, "Gee, Winnegars, our GDP has just fallen by three percent." Yep. All right. So what we need to do and what the challenge will be going forward is to develop a common language so that those participants in the discussion can actually understand one another and work out the balance. Now, you see it happening already when we are, in effect, saying, okay, we're going to open gradually, stepwise, and every province has a different way of going about it. Uh, but we're going to open stepwise, but they're all saying, based on the science, we're going to have to do something about seniors. Why? They're the vulnerable people. Sure. And, of course, the people who are immune compromised. And, geez, we've got to figure out why some other people are so vulnerable. All right. But meanwhile, social distance, wear your masks, watch very, very carefully. But keep in mind that the outcome, the measure, the only one we've really got now, that we're starting to get antibodies and other things, but the only measure we've really got now is as we open up, are we seeing outbreaks? So the price is actually paid in human illness and human death, potentially. So it's a delicate dance, and that's why, you know, a good scientist is saying, I don't have all the answers, but my assessment of the risk is we've got to be really cautious till we get more answers. Right. And and erring on the side of caution has proven to be quite a prudent approach, as uh, Dr. Henry and others have demonstrated. I'm down to my last minute, Dr. Shipper, and I'm I'm curious about a vaccine. But since we're on science, some scientists somewhere on the planet or group of scientists is eventually going to serve up a vaccine. How rapidly... Do you think that's realistically going to, to happen? I'm astonished. I've had some conversations with people right at the center of that business. And I'm astonished by how quickly they can work. And when you think about it, uh, business and government have come together to backstop the enormous risks of developing large production and distribution capacity before you even know for sure if it works. Right. So from that perspective, it's been astonishing. Hey, we're six months into this, and we've already characterized it enough that there are about 20 vaccines in clinical trials and a whole bunch of others going forward. And the Oxford Group and others have already committed to as many as a billion doses. That's aside from the question about how effective it's going to be, and that's going to take a while to know. So my view of this thing to put it very simply, is that we're pecking away at it. We're pecking away at the lethality for those who get sick. We're learning how to treat them better, even without a magic bullet new drug. There are things we're learning. We're learning how to keep people away from the virus, social distancing, and a vaccine will be part of the story. Uh, But think about it this way. If you could vaccinate a million people a day in India... All right, that sounds like a lot of vaccines to give. All right, it would take them 
if you will, three years to vaccinate the Indian population. Yeah, but at least they'd have something to work with. I have to leave it there, Dr. Shipper, but I am I am impressed by your, your thoughtfulness and by your optimism. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to have the opportunity to speak to you again. Would be my pleasure, and thank you. Dr. Harvey Shipper from the University of Toronto School of Medicine. We take a look at, well, one of British Columbia's most popular destinations. It is the summer of the staycation, and the ads are all over TV where come and explore British Columbia. And I think the numbers will bear us out when we talk to some folks in Tofino as to exactly how popular a destination it is. Our family's been going there for years, and I can hardly wait to get back next month going over for a week. Uh, it's time Time to check in with the folks on the West Coast, the real West Coast of Canada, over in Tofino on the far side of Vancouver Island. And we welcome to the program a couple of delegates. We'll be joined in a few more minutes by Dwayne Bell. But it's a pleasure to say good morning to Jennifer Stephen and Sheila Orcheston. Jennifer is with the whale-watching outfit over there. Uh, it's uh, Tofino Whale Centre. And Sheila runs Rare Earth wedding. So good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Jennifer, you've been a, a, a Tofino person, a resident for your, your whole life, pretty much. You run the, the whale center. You've got the, the, the bear tours, the hot spring tours, the whale watching tours, all of that sort of thing. What is the summer of 2020 like compared to so many summers that you've spent there um, prior to this year? It's got to be unbelievably different. It is an unbelievably different year. Um, this is, you know, we've lost a huge amount of tourism this year, um, especially for my sector this year. We we're not able to run the Hot Springs tour because BC Parks hasn't reopened Hot Springs in, in the province of BC. Um, yeah, it's a different year. We're definitely missing the tourists. Um, but the, what we're seeing now is a lot of people from British Columbia visiting Tofino that maybe never could visit bef before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's great. Or, or perhaps in, in some cases, people who haven't been there since maybe many, many years ago and finally coming back. And I, I'm thinking, for example, people who maybe were there on their honeymoon years and years ago and are coming back. And this is why we got Sheila on the line from Rare Earth Weddings, because I'm told, Sheila, that, and I know people who got married on the beach in Tofino, okay? Most of us know someone who either is planning to or has done just that. And I thought, well, you know, this, as, as Jennifer just said, you know, it's really a different summer. So I was saying, I'll bet you there's just, nobody's getting married. And that's just not the case. It's not the same volume, Sheila, but there's still business, isn't there? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean... I myself got married on the beach in Tofino Good years ago. Good for you. Good for you. I know. And so we're definitely still doing weddings. Um, we did have a, a small portion of time when um, COVID did hit um, in March. So our last elopements uh, were March 17th. and uh, But then we recently have begun doing weddings again. And the big thing is Tofino is a place to come and reconnect. And with everyone having been in self-isolation and together, uh, you know, they want to get back out and enjoy nature. And we have the oceans, the beaches, the forests, and it's a perfect place to come and exchange your vows. Um, what we've also seen an increase of is vow renewals. And I mean, I guess, you know, you spend months with your loved one, you've been married for a long time, and uh, now's the perfect time to sort of 
recommit to each other and come out to Tofino and be together. So what's uh, now the rules, of course, are in place. And, and, and Jennifer, I'm sure they, they, they work on the whale boats the same as they're going to work for beach weddings. There's going to be distancing. There's going to be masking and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, and, and I would imagine no groups larger than 50 people for you at, at any wedding event, Sheila, correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that we've been working with couples on is we had a a lot of couples who had larger weddings planned for 2020. Mm -hmm. That was definitely a shift initially. So we talked with them about rescheduling to 2021. And we were really lucky. A lot of our couples who wanted to keep those larger weddings still wanted to get married in Tofino. You know, they've come here. They love it. They want to share that with their family and friends. Mm -hmm. So they have committed to next year um, still having their Tofino wedding and their larger wedding. Um, but some couples decided to downsize. You know, they thought, we still want to get married this year in 2020, so let's just make it more intimate. You know, either an elopement or with just their immediate family. Right. Because one of the restrictions, like you said, Sterling, is the 50 person and under. And with the social distancing and different things, venues and uh, vendors had to sort of readjust what, they're, what they could do for weddings. So it's just working with the couples to reimagine what their wedding could look like during these times and still match the vision they want for Tofino. Interesting. So when they do come here, they have what they were wanting um, and feel really good about it and, you know, enjoy that time with their family. So I know of uh, one group particular uh, here, friends of the family, for example, Sheila, they had originally planned, oh, just a small gathering of 350 people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yikes. Anyway, yes. that's, that's been pared down to 35. So mm-hmm. there's all of a sudden a much more manageable group. And so what they're going to do is basically what you were just suggesting, Sheila. They're going to have the, the basically the, the wedding party and the immediate family members, a group of roughly two to three dozen people, and they're going to stream the event uh, to all of the, the other 350 people that were supposed to be at the original wedding, and they're just going to postpone. They're going to have a great big honking bash next year when it can be done, but they're not willing, as some of your guests have suggested, they're not willing to wait a year to get hitched. They'll have the big bash maybe next year. So I gather, Sheila, that's a sentiment that's fairly strong. Okay, we're not going to be able to do it the way we really had originally planned, but let's get married anyway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and again, it's that whole idea of reimagining and making it work um, in these times. And live streaming is definitely one thing we can do here. Mm -hmm. Um, Videography is really an important element that could be added on if it wasn't originally. Um, You know, a three to five minute highlight film that they can share online with all the guests that they were going to have attend. And I'm definitely working with um, couples who are going down quite a bit in size, but still wanting to share this experience with their, you know, their family and friends that aren't able to make it. And that's been one of the things talking with each couple about is, you know, everyone's different, whether, you know, how COVID's affected their life, um, their family's life, travel restrictions. You know, they have maybe family from out of country that they really want to have present that they're not able to. Mm -hmm. So it's just working with all of them to sort of make sure that we do the best we can here in Tofino. That's really important to us, especially um, that we have amazing vendors, we have amazing venues, and what I love about our community here is we work so closely with each other to make sure that we execute the best day for these couples. And especially during these times where they've 
you know, everyone's been through a lot. Jennifer, how has it changed the whale uh, watching business? Obviously, I would imagine you are you are required to take fewer people per trip. Uh, is distancing an issue on board the boats once you're out whale watching? Well, now we're, we're, we require guests to wear masks on our vessels because you really can't social distance on a boat. Right. So there are new changes when you come out with us. You know, there's hand sanitizer when you enter the building. Um, you're required to wear your mask and to get onto the boat. We do. I would normally take 12 passengers out. Right now I'm taking 10. Um, yeah, we're making changes to make people feel comfortable and safe the best that we can. Is whale watching still as big a deal this summer as it always has been? The whales are still here. We're seeing them every day. Uh, But there is a big decline in how many people we're taking out. And that's simply just volume. People still, again, not there in the kind of numbers, no lineups, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. What kind of whales are running right now, the humpbacks or the greys? We see the gray whales and the humpbacks and the killer whales. Oh, wow. So yeah. there, that, that, that's a splendid day on the water. So in, in terms of, uh, and Jennifer, you're going to stay with us uh, and, and we're going to talk to Dwayne uh, after the break. But, but Sheila, back to you, because again, uh, the wedding planner and a, a lot of people uh, still uh, wanting to do something different, something very, very BC. And there's nothing quite like getting married on the beach. That's about as BC an experience as you can possibly have, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it is. And I'm standing actually on my patio right now looking out at the inlet. And it's it's beautiful. It's stunning. And whether it's on the beach that you exchange your vows or in the rainforest, mm-hmm. or I mean, even on a helicopter up to the glacier, um, there's definitely a lot of options um, to do that here in Tofino. And um, we're seeing a lot of couples who actually had to cancel large destination weddings in Hawaii or Mexico or other international destinations who are calling me and, uh, and again, re-looking at what they're going to do for their wedding. And they're um, excited now to be able to choose Tofino for a much smaller intimate wedding in 2020. Um, or moving into 2021, and I'm just really excited to work with all of them. Oh, good for you. And so it's rareearthweddings.com for anyone listening who may still have in the back of their mind that dream wedding on the beach, rareearthweddings.com, and Sheila will be there, right? You bet, and so we're all, our whole community. We're really excited to welcome um, visitors back and to give them the experience here in Tofino. Talking Tofino for a few more minutes with a couple of guests, one of whom runs the Whale Center. And we're just talking uh, with uh, Jennifer Stevens here. And Jennifer, looking at the website and all the variety of whale watching tours, you've got. Uh, uh, you told us that the Hot Springs Cove tours are, of course, canceled because Parks uh, BC has uh, kept the Hot Springs all province hot springs closed so far but you have tofino bird watching tours along with the whale and bear watching tours and something called the pelagic bird watching tour what on earth is that uh that's a tour for the advanced birder that wants to go offshore to find like albatross and fin whales and whatever's out there it's a fantastic eight-hour tour Ah, and I would imagine that uh, a bird watching tour or even a bear watching tour could quite possibly also involve whales, like it or not. Absolutely. We see whales sometimes on our bear watching tours. We've got a bird watching tour heading out the door right now. And how many, how many boats do you have in the water and how frequently do they go out? 
Um, we have boats going out all day through the day. Um, yet this year, we only have four boats in the water. Normally, we would have six. Ah, okay. And again, so uh, well, we're just uh, trying to get an idea of things because Sheila, of course, was talking about how business is starting to pick up for the wedding planner end of things. But you're talking, Jennifer, about just volume of visitors overall uh, being still low, lower than typically, of course, in early July. That's when Tofino is just really just jammed. Uh, jammed is not an adjective that's going to work this year. Is it busy, though? There's definitely people in Tofino visiting and, and just for all the reasons that, that Sheila hit on, you know, they want to enjoy nature. They've been in their houses for four months or their, their vacations to Maui or Mexico were canceled. So they've just decided to come to Tofino and it, it's been great. Um, yeah, the, the people are, have been awesome. They're respecting all the guidelines and procedures that businesses have presented to them. And we're seeing a lot of people in the community wearing masks mm-hmm. and they can't social distance. That's been excellent to see for sure. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting because uh, Jennifer, a lot of people, uh, as you say, had other plans and uh, life gets in the way as does, uh, as do pandemics. And so here we are in the, in the, uh, in the summer of 2020, it's the summer of the staycation and more and more of us are coming to terms with that. And are you expecting, uh, for example, do you have reservations and are you seeing those starting to fill up as more and more of us are going okay so we're going to stay home and let's go here and and make some reservations absolutely we're seeing british columbians making plans coming to tofino they want to go out whale watching they want to do the bear watching and that's been excellent Dwayne Bell is with us. Dwayne owns the Rhino Coffee House in uh, Tofino. He's been there for six years. It was a hotelier in the area as well. Dwayne, thanks for joining us. Good morning to you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to have you with us. You're also uh, with the Chamber of Commerce. You're a vice president there, and you've been a volunteer firefighter, a real community kind of guy with a very interesting story to tell. You had uh, you had an opportunity to uh, come to the aid of the Tofino General Hospital Foundation. Uh, you got a break on your rent in April. Tell us a story, because it's a nice story, and it's good to hear. Oh, thanks. Um yeah, I, I was. Um, we we closed for a few weeks uh, the the end of March, and then I was able to open up again for takeout in April, and uh, so obviously a lot less business, but we were uh, still open and, mm-hmm. and able to sort of operate. And uh, and our landlord had um, not only you know sort of given us April off, but then when May came and the government had announced their sort of. Uh, their their lease program there for uh, tenants and landlords. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still said that um, they were going to uh, let us have that month off as well there. And I just, you know, I just felt, looked at my moral compass and I, you know, I felt I could contribute. So I took my portion of the rent that I would have had to give them and I uh, donated it to the General Hospital Foundation, uh, which is obviously a, uh, a great organization and we're all very behind it and, and that and they had unfortunately also missed their big fundraiser of the year uh-huh. at the end of april so mm-hmm. i just felt that was a way of sort of helping out a bit so Interesting. And to, to, to both of you, because this, the, and I'm glad the hospital came up into the conversation because Jennifer and Dwayne, both of you, uh, we knew and we saw evidence on the Suppertime News for many months uh, subsequent to the lockdown, mayors and spokespeople for many small British Columbia communities 
pleading with the big city folks to please stay where you are. We don't want you to come and visit us right now. Uh, our our local uh, emergency and health facilities are designed for us. They're not designed for a huge crowd. That, that we, we would be overwhelmed really quickly. So in the cities, we got the message. We got, okay, that makes sense. So now it's, it's reversing that message, Jennifer, that's a part of the chore, isn't it? Do you think it's starting to get out? Absolutely. People are excited to come back. Um, and, and, you know, when we closed, that was a really hard decision to make and a hard message to put out. But it was absolutely the right thing to do. Because sure. That helped put us where we are right now to be in phase three in July. Um, so, yeah, ev- everyone's absolutely excited to come back to Jofino. Dwayne, when people show up at the Rhino Coffee House for a cup of joe and they're from somewhere else than Tofino, and I'm sure they pause to chat with you, where are you finding most of them are from? Oh, uh, definitely, um, you know, the, the rest of the island, Victoria, and then obviously um, a, a good amount of people from the mainland there. So, yeah, I've uh, yeah, rarely come across... Um, out of province, I mean, I know there's probably a few here and that kind of stuff, but for the most part, uh, it's it's the whole, like I'm going to say, almost 95% of it is definitely a BC uh, market. And from that point of view alone, it must be kind of interesting because you've uh, been running the Rhino Coffee House now for half a dozen years or more, and I would imagine in, at the peak of summer season are quite accustomed to hearing accents when, uh, from people who come in to buy coffee, and not American accents exclusively by any means either, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I actually specifically hire one or two German staff a year to sort of help with that market and... Uh, yeah, there, um, there's not too many German accents coming in for sure. So. so, Jennifer, what locally, and to both of you again locally, what is, what's the challenge now? I mean, A, you've got to restore economic activity to the region, which we're discovering uh, and welcoming the information that it is starting to happen. How long a process do you see this being? For example, um, in terms of uh, anticipated growth or anticipated revenues this year, clearly it's going to be different we've, we've talked about that already it, it, what are your projections for for the season at the end of the season where would you like to be versus where do you think you'll be well i'd say i'm down about 80 percent for this season um i would like to be at a place at the end of the season that i'm able to get through the winter we're able to staff through the winter and be ready for next season hoping that things are going to be completely different for Tofino and, and for British Columbia. And uh, Dwayne, is uh, those familiar numbers for you? Are you in better or worse shape? What, what's your projection? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, as, as Jen had put it, uh, we're definitely sort of a, a feast and theme uh, kind of uh, market here. And um, so obviously the summer is sort of where the, the most of your uh, – yearly annual revenue comes from so we're sort of in that market so yeah i'm exactly sort of mentally attacking this the same way as uh, as jen is where i'm sort of just hoping to get my bank accounts to a certain number and the stress tests have shown that uh but if I do, then I, I should I should be able to get through the winter. Just keep that nose above water, above all exactly. else. Dwayne, I'm going to hitch up for a cup of coffee uh, next month. I'm coming yeah, over I'd for a few days. Here. And uh, Jen, I may, I may uh, just go out for a, a little bit of a whale-watching uh, cruise with my wife, Carol. We'll look forward to meeting both of you. And thank you for joining us tomorrow, this morning. Uh, c- we wish you great luck for the rest of the season. 
Thanks, Thanks, no, for, thanks having for having us. us. Jennifer Stevens and Dwayne Bell, along with uh, our other guest, Sheila Orcheston, joining us from wonderful Tofino this morning. Joined by investigative reporter Jeremy Hainsworth from Glacier Media, Business in Vancouver, and all those local papers. Jeremy, a pleasure to have you back on the show, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's always a pleasure to be on the air with you. Well, I appreciate that, Jeremy. You filed a couple of really interesting stories this week, and I want to take a look at both of them. Uh, You talked, first of all, about the courts uh, continuing to try to get back to normal, and also a very interesting story about a facial recognition firm and a contract they have with the Mounties. But let's get to the courts first, because we in British Columbia have come to know that our court system, even before the pandemic, Jeremy, was not exactly what you'd call up to speed with 2020 kind of technology it is it is it's archaic in so many ways the courts have been struggling to modernize for at least 10 years uh, losing a lot of the struggles but nonetheless now with the imperative of modernizing because of remote uh, working from home and other covid realities how are they doing in that rush to catch up well, as they say, rearview rearview vision is always twenty twenty, and uh, <clears throat> you know they're they're seeing that right now. <clears throat> the courts uh, it's a high bound institution; it doesn't move quickly, mm-hmm. and COVID has shown very very uh, definitively that uh, the courts have, have not kept up to speed on te- with technology. Uh, it's very much a paper based system. And uh, and an appear personal appearance based system. Yes. And what this has shown is that in order for justice to be able to move forward, in order for hearings to be held, in order for people to get what they need through the court processes and through the application of the law, technology has to be brought to bear. And this has been shown very clearly. Okay, because people are still being asked to stay away from courthouses unless absolutely necessary, right, Jeremy? Oh, yeah, it's uh, the social distancing thing uh, very much applies to the courts. Um, lawyers and, uh, and people appealing to the courts have now been asked to file more and more electronically. Systems are being put in place. Uh, a lot of the uh, the Zoom type, not necessarily that platform, right. but that type of appearance, uh, a lot more telephone usage for uh, making applications, etc. Uh, the courts uh, have moved forward very quickly on this. And it's something that had existed. The, the Attorney General's ministry had recognized this quite some time ago. But nothing had really happened, and Attorney General David Eby has sort of picked up the ball and said, "Yeah, we gotta, we gotta move forward with this." And the chief justices agree. Well, that's and that's what I was coming to next, because uh, as part of the story that you covered on the courts, uh, you note that the the bosses, the top judges, are stepping up now and issuing new sets of directives and guidelines. I guess the idea being here to kind of hit the accelerator and get this thing done a little more quickly, Jeremy. Yeah, it's, you know, they, they've recognized, uh, the chief justices, that, that, that there are ways to do things that can make the, uh, uh, the court system more nimble. And, and I think that's very much a, a key term there is nimble. It's, it's, it's a slow system. You know, and uh, it goes back centuries, sure. and uh, because of COVID, it's it's having to pick itself up by the bootstraps and haul itself into the 21st century. All right, let's take a look at because there are several uh, several degrees or or branches of the courts that you've identified in in the story you yeah. did uh, for the Glacier Media this week. So let's start uh, with the BC Court of Appeal. Where are they, and where are they trying to get to? 
Well, the 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 Court of Appeal, uh, you know, is is very much a uh, a fact and uh, and uh, a submissions based system. It's it's not a trial court. Uh, it deals with arguments based on previous decisions. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a lot of documentation filing there. Uh, they have not been doing a heck of a lot of uh, in uh, in person stuff. Uh, because it's, uh, you know, in, to my opinion, and, and maybe those that of others, um, you know, they uh, they <clears throat> they don't necessarily. I won't say don't need. They don't necessarily need uh, the in court proceedings. Okay. They should exist. Do they no. do they still, however, hear occasional oral arguments? Uh, and once the documentation has been submitted, they've had a chance to review all the paperwork. Do they still allow arguments at all in the court of appeal? I can't answer that question, Sterling. Okay. I, I believe they do, but uh, it's the lower courts that uh, are more the in-person based stuff. Well, I'm, I'm looking now at a, at, a, at a quote from Chief Justice Robert Bauman of the Court of Appeal. Quote, persons in the courtroom are not required to wear masks, but everyone may, of course, do so, except when addressing the court at the hearing. So one would assume that there are moments uh, during which uh, individuals are called upon to present themselves. And, of course, then they do need to see your face as you're expressing yourself, don't they? Yes, they do. Okay. What about the B.C. Supreme Court? What's going on over there? Well, the Supreme Court, uh, like the provincial court, uh, is dealing with more criminal matters. And uh, they deal with more in-person stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, they, they are making more allowances for people to be able to come into the courts for cases to be heard. They're going to hear things like, uh, detention reviews, bail reviews, etc. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, this is, you know, they're doing some of that by video. Right. Uh, they're doing some of it by phone, but there are cases, uh, where there are, um, emergent situations, shall we say, where it becomes necessary that the courts have an in-person hearing, mm-hmm. and, and and that's everybody's right. And I guess though it's just it's just join the lineup. If in fact you you need to, you your case, whatever your matters are, uh, that before the courts, uh, you actually need to be there in person. Then you're probably going to be. Uh, I would think. Uh, are there significant delays in appearances? Are you aware of no, any of those? They've- they're, they're, they're the emergency matters right, and okay. urgent matters mm-hmm. that the courts are hearing, <clears throat> um, but other things have been put off. Right. Uh, you know, there are cases that were on the dockets that have been pushed back. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it's the courts have been assessing situations. And if, if your situation is not an absolute emergency uh, or deemed to be by a judge, then you will be pushed further back. So, you know, I, I don't know what the caseload uh, delay numbers are yet. Right. But uh, I'm sure they're significant by this point. Well, and you're right to point out that if on criminal matters, urgent criminal matters, for example, involving, and of course, it's a big city, so you're going to have murders and robberies and arrests and high-profile cases. And, and uh, yes, those individuals need to be heard. They need to plead. They need to be remanded into custody pending charges or trial or whatever. And then there's, and that's criminal law, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, B.C. Supreme Court also looks after family law matters. 
others, and those I would imagine would be a lot further down on the list in terms of ability to be uh, physically present for urgent matters, but um, still they will, they will hear them. They, they have been hearing a lot of that uh, using technology, Sure, but the, the courts haven't skimped on how they deal with family law matters. Because there, there's the recognition that, that situations involving families, etc., um, are important to those families. You know, they're, they're humans, uh, you know, people's lives and emotions and, and family structures and, and everything else involved. And, you know, the, the courts aren't, uh, aren't dismissing the importance of that. Sure. Jeremy, a curiosity question, just a flat-out curiosity question, because we don't seem to do it as frequently in Canada as they do it in the States, but it's certainly common. What about jury trials? What if you're in a, in a, in a trial that you, you, you have requested to have your, your, your case tried by a judge and a jury? So that involves a whole lot of other people in the room at all times, hearing all the arguments, weighing all the evidence. Are we still conducting jury trials? We're not conducting jury trials. Uh-huh. For the moment. It's, you know, imagine 12 people in, 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 in the jury box. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the same as sticking people on an airplane. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> jur- juries aren't proceeding uh, the same way, uh, you know, the airlines are. Okay, thought so about that. Now, what about B.C. Provincial Court? This is, again, this is the third <laughs> branch. We had the Court of Appeal and the B.C. Supreme Court. And, and the third on the list is the Provincial Court. What's the status? there, Jeremy? Well, they deal with a lot of the preliminary stuff. If somebody's arrested on a matter, say a criminal matter, mm-hmm. um, it's provincial where they appear first. Okay. So an initial bail hearing or whatever, some of those have been done by phone. Um, I believe they're beginning to open that up again. Uh, in the last week, uh, Chief Judge Melissa Gillespie uh, released some guidances about starting to loosen things up so they could start hearing more things. They also hear some family law stuff. And, uh, you know, they, they treat those as, uh, as, as important cases as well. Okay. And a small claims court, I guess that falls under the jurisdiction of the provincial court. Yeah, it does. Um, the, the, the small claims issue is, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> the flow of documentation, I'm sure, is continuing, but it's not considered a high priority. Uh, okay. So what are you hearing now? Because you did pretty extensive homework on filing this stuff. And uh, in addition to talking to people in the court system, judges and clerks and so on, I'm sure you have stumbled across the odd lawyer in your in your <laughs> trials. So what what are you hearing from the legal profession? Because, of course, this, this affects all areas of the law. No matter what type of law you practice, inevitably, you need some court of judicial approval uh, uh, in, in the process of getting things done. Well, it, it's hampered the ability of, uh, of, uh, of lawyers to, uh, to be able to do their work. But, but, you know, so many people have been hampered in, in what they do. And, and, and lawyers are no exception through the COVID situation. You know, it's, uh, they continue to do what they can do for their clients within the, the COVID restrictions that the courts have placed. And, you know, um, there's the limitations on uh, the number of people in a courtroom. Sure. And, you know... W- I, I don't think I'd want to, well, three months ago, I certainly wouldn't have gone down to a courthouse. 
Um, and even now, I think twice about it. And, and members of the bar are in exactly the same situation. Interesting stuff. So, uh, again, I, I'm wondering just as a general feeling that you walk away from having done this piece as we started out our conversation this morning, Jeremy, about how 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 much of a struggle it has been for the court system in British Columbia oh, for quite a while now to try to keep up to technology, and it hasn't been a winning struggle up until now. Can you say that that dynamic is changing at all? Again, out of necessity, the system has had to change, and far more rapidly than it was prepared to do so beforehand. Is it working? It's it's, it's beginning to work. uh, I think both the courts, and if I remember correctly, David Eby, had said that the the money wasn't being put into the system. But now we've seen that, uh, you know, through necessity, uh, the changes can be made, and, and they're being made. So all things considered, we're at least heading in the right direction, and we're, we're not going to be we're not going to be there tomorrow, but we're at least on the on track now. Yeah, and there's one 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 important thing that should be added here. Okay, uh, through the COVID situation, uh, there were a lot of issues around privacy uh, through ministerial orders, etc., mm-hmm. that might have had constitutional problems attached attached to them, and the courts were always prepared to hear constitutional uh, uh, complaints against uh, actions the government were taking. Joined on the line by Jeremy Hainsworth, award-winning reporter, investigative guy with Glacier Media, who filed a story this week about a facial recognition firm from New York suspending its contract with the RCMP. This all, Jeremy, as a result of an investigation by B.C., along with Quebec, Alberta, and the feds into this New York company. What's the company and what's the backstory? Well, the company is called uh, Clearview AI, and uh, they're, they're a U.S.-based company. Um, what <clears throat> what uh, facial recognition firms do is, you know, they for their clients, they film, and they gather data, and uh, they take uh, various points uh, of recognition from faces, and they match those to data banks, and they can use those data banks to identify the people from those points of recognition. Okay, so this this company has been doing this uh, here in Canada. Yeah, for whom? Uh, well, they had a contract with the RCMP, and uh, they uh, had been uh, their their services have been used by the Toronto Police Service, and apparently uh, uh, Hamilton, Ontario, uh, had been trying out uh, the software as well. They were told to stop by the privacy commissioner. There. Oh, I see. So it becomes, a, a, so we're back to the privacy matters then again. So the police in Ontario, in Toronto and Hamilton, uh, were advised by the Ontario privacy commissioner to stop, what, dealing or retaining the services of this stop, facial stop recognition? Stop retaining the services of no. this, uh, this organization. Uh, what, what it comes down to is <clears throat> when you're creating a situation that might have privacy implications, uh, you, you need to do a privacy assessment, and you need to generally submit that to the privacy commissioner's office for an approval. You would think so. Yeah, because what it all comes down to in the various privacy laws across Canada, and there's multiple, uh, federal and provincial, what it comes down to is consent of the people whose personal information is collected. Right. And your face is your personal information. 
and I suppose it, it becomes a question of once they've gathered this information, where do they store it and to whom do they make it available? Well, well, this is the thing. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, one, one would hope that they are storing it in Canada, uh, which is part of the law. Collected uh, personal information should be stored on servers in Canada. Mm-hmm. There have been problems with that in the past. And, and indeed, a ministerial order uh, under COVID has allowed for Can- uh, British Columbians' health data to be transmitted outside the country. But back to the facial recognition stuff, um, you know, very often we don't know where this stuff is stored. Yeah. Was the privacy assessment done? We don't know. But the, the commissioners have been saying, no, 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 no. So <clears throat> British Columbia's privacy commissioner, Michael McAvoy, has probably had more than a few things to say about this, along with his Ontario counterpart, who advised a couple of police forces in that province to step back from using the services of this company. What's the, what's the story out of Victoria, Mr. McAvoy? Well, he, uh, Mr. McAvoy uh, is a pretty sharp cookie, and, and he generally uh, you know, uh, leans on the, uh, the consent issue. Uh, you know, <clears throat> who's, who's picking this stuff up? Sure. Where, what's it being used for? And uh, he's been working with uh, those uh, other provincial uh, commissioners, but also the federal commissioner. And, and he's worked with the federal commissioner on other things. There was an outfit called Aggregate IQ, uh, which was collecting data as well. Remember that name? That was a Vancouver Island company, as I yeah, recall. Yeah, out of Victoria. Okay, so now, when did they disconnect with the Mounties? Or when, did, rather, did the Mounties disconnect with this American company, uh, well, Clearview? Well, this is unclear. There's, there's nothing on Clearview AI's website. Uh, this is just something that was released on uh, this past Monday, I believe, by the Privacy Commissioner saying this had stopped. Uh, but there's no indication as to when the contract was severed. Ah, okay, and still no determination as to what happened to all of that information that they had been authorized to gather for at least a short while. What happened to all of those Ontario people in Hamilton and Toronto and elsewhere that had been uh, using this facial recognition technology by their police departments? Where is all that stuff now? Where are all those files? Well, one would assume that uh, if they were following the law, as everybody does, as you know, sir, oh, yeah, sure. um, those images would have been stored on a server in Canada. And, you know, the, the privacy commissioners, as they often do in such cases, would, uh, would likely tell them, uh, you know, get rid of this information. Sure. You know, you, know, you, you weren't supposed to be collecting it. Uh, get rid of it. Uh, but very often we don't know when this stuff is happening. Um, for example, there were cameras on bus stops in downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And uh, the company claimed they weren't operational. I remember those, yep. Uh, but my question was, how do we know? Well, you know, who's, 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 you know, who's going down and taking apart the bus stops or looking at the police cameras or, or whatever and, and taking these things apart to see if they're operational? Well, they're unanswered questions, my friend, that clearly need the uh, attention of an investigative reporter to get even <laughs> deeper to the bottom of this story. I'm always watching. All right, Jeremy. But I'm not Big Brother. Thanks for bringing this to our attention, and we will get back to you to find out even more.
Cheers, Sterling. Cheers. Jeremy Hainsworth, award-winning investigative reporter with Glacier Media. It is time to welcome Laura Jones back to the program. Laura is vice president with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and always a welcome guest on this program. Laura, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on again. That's good to have you back. We all we had the big statement to the reality check that we all got, like it or not, to $343 billion deficit and counting so far on behalf of the current government. Uh, the I'm just checking the CFIB website and uh, just for the reaction, doing a little homework, of course, in preparation for you. One mm-hmm. must, Laura. Uh, but the, the CFIB uh, actually expressing disappointment, uh, along with other uh, business groups across the country, because they say uh, the, the general complaint is, aside from the staggering number in the first place, Laura, is the lack of a plan that going forward. There doesn't seem to be, uh, here are the numbers, Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And that was the end of the speech. Uh, There wasn't much substance beyond here are the numbers. Yeah, I think, look, you know, the deficit is is 10 times uh, what the pre-COVID deficit and pre-COVID deficit was was high for many business owners uh, uh, taste. But I don't think anyone went into the statement thinking we were going to be pleasantly surprised Mm -hmm. by the debt and deficit numbers. So um, it kind of. Uh, you know, those numbers um, we knew were going to be sobering, shockingly high. Uh, but what we also know is that this isn't sustainable. You can't have deficits um, of this size and accumulate debt uh, at this rate. I mean, the debt to GDP ratio, my goodness, that jumped from 31% to 49%. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are big increases. And, you know, for a one time big shock to the system, that's okay. But we really do need to pivot. Um, and get out of this and get back to recovery. And I think, as you said, what was disappointing about the statement was it was, um, you know, it, it did reveal some numbers. That was good. Uh, there was a little bit of, you know, but, but there really wasn't a pivot to recovery. And that's what business owners um, desperately need. And, you know, certainty is a pretty cheap stimulus. Um, and just giving some idea of kind of what the plans are for, for recovery, I think would have, would have, um, gone a long way with business owners. Not, a, no one was expecting a fully baked, um, kind of plan, right. but there are some big problems. Uh, that continue with the bridge to recovery on some of the existing programs. So one of the other things the numbers revealed was that if you look at the rent recovery program, um, less than 10% of the budgeted amount has been used for that program. And we know there are still many business owners who are desperate for that rent relief in order to bridge them back to a more normal uh, state. We talk about the government debt. You know, you like to call me on, on, we like to have these conversations on Sunday, which is great because I can give you a preview of coming attractions. But one of the things we're doing this week is we're, we're taking a look at small business debt. Yeah. And small business owners um, have gone into to deep debt uh, to finance the COVID, you know, as their sales plummeted and they were still paying bills like rent and, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, still paying employees and, and, and paying their suppliers and they had other costs that they couldn't get out of. Um, and so we really do need to think about how we're going to get back to a m- more normal state. And we are far, far, far from normal uh, right now in terms of uh, where the economy overall is at. And certainly the small business sector is still really, really hurting. Yeah, interesting. We had a conversation about an hour ago with three small 
business people, Laura, in Tofino. One was a wedding planner, one owns a whale watching company, and the other one owns a coffee shop. And so, of course, they're uh, on the recovery side now after a, a, a long gap of no customers and certainly no foreigners, but they're now starting to see an uptick in business from British Columbians. But, you know, in, in, in that conversation, you, you got the, you, you, you came to understand pretty quickly how tough it's been. And I wonder, uh, I, I'm, I'm just diving into the numbers and your reaction, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business reaction, um, my sense is, and I'd like you to help connect these dots, there has, there's this program called the Emergency Wage Subsidy that is designed specifically to help employees of small businesses. But as I understand it, Laura, not a lot of small businesses have been able to take advantage of this program. What's the problem? Well, there are two things with the wage subsidy program. So each one of the programs has their, you know, has, you know, they're, they're all doing some good. So let me start with that. Okay. Uh, but each one of them has some challenges. And, you know, the wage subsidy program is, is fairly complicated in terms of the um, administration and, and figuring it out. Um, the other thing is that, that for each of these programs, there are some requirements to qualify. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the wage subsidy program has a 30% revenue uh, drop uh, qualifying criteria. Um, so, you know, there, that, can be, um, that can be particularly as you move into recovery a bit of a challenge. And one of the things we've been saying to government is we need to look at how you graduate um, those thresholds so it's not kind of all or nothing. And mm-hmm. if you're looking at, for example, um, you know, you're, you're at a, a Thirty percent revenue drop, but you have an opportunity to make a sale before the end—a big sale before the end of the month. You don't want to hold off on that economic activity, um, so that's one of the one of the challenges with the wage subsidy. And certainly, another challenge is that we don't have any certainty about the current period for the wage subsidy. So the government often indicates that they're making changes. But then it, there's a big delay in terms of the announcement that there are going to be changes and what the actual implementation of the changes are. So we were quite frustrated that we didn't have more clarity around that. Again, you know, for businesses, we're living in very uncertain times. And yes. of course, um, there's a certain amount of that that nobody can control. Um, but, you know, to create as much sort of certainty and clarity as you can in these uncertain times is a pretty cheap stimulus. And, and I think for business owners, just knowing what's going on with program like that is important. The other one, of course, is is rent. And a lot of business owners asking me now, well, is this it? Like, the, they're not going to fix this program where, you know, a lot of people who need the help and, by the way, qualify in terms of being 70%. And that program is a 70%, a higher threshold. But there are many people who qualify but can't get it because their landlord won't apply for it. Sure, and yeah. it's not clear whether the government plans to fix it or not. So those are some challenges with the main programs, both the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy. Yeah, I need to take a break here. But just before I do, back to the emergency wage subsidy. And you've identified some of the problems associated with that, particularly in the qualification uh, aspect of it with revenue drops uh, needing to be 30 percent and have to provide evidence, all that sort of thing. What percentage of businesses who do qualify, Laura, have actually received the benefit? It's a small, you know, it's it's not as big as they were projecting. And this is what's going on right across these programs is that you're seeing that the use is not, um, you know, they allocate a certain amount of, of, of budget room right. uh, for the programs. And then the use of them is 
is is low. And so I can give you the another example is the, the rent subsidy where use is very low. And we're seeing it looks like it's like between seven and 10 percent, less than 10 wow. percent of, of the money has mm. been allocated. And that program is almost finished. So, yeah, it's, it's quite low. Joined on the line by Laura Jones, vice president with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And we have uh, learned to invite Laura to join us on Sunday mornings on this program. And she's been kind enough to do so a number of times because they survey like crazy over at the CFIB. They get all the data collected on Friday night and analyze it and break it down over the weekend. So by Sunday morning, there's a fresh batch. And Laura, I'm looking at some of the numbers. Uh, and referencing that conversation we had with those small business people in Tofino last hour, just let me throw this one at you. Uh, half of business owners, 53%, think it will take more than six months to get back to normal profitability. Almost one in three, or 30%, say it will take more than a year. And 5% are concerned they will never get back to normal profits. That's uh, that's the latest set of numbers. And this is pretty much reflective of the way things have been going for the past while, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's worrying. So we, you know, there's some, we put together a set of numbers that we're watching regularly on our, our small business uh, recovery dashboard. Mm-hmm. And they include things like, you know, what percent are fully open again? Because that's a start, right? Sure. When, you, when you can be back to normal. So we've got over half of businesses now fully open, but that's really just the start. Um, when you look at um, how many businesses are back to being normally staffed to their kind of pre-COVID staffing levels, you're looking at only one in three. Ah, okay. And only one, yeah. So then you start to see a bit of, some of those are relying on the wage subsidy, right? So that's not, that's, it's not a, that's not a subsidy free environment that we're, we're looking at there. Um, and then only one in four are back to normal sales for this time of year. One in four. Right. So you start to see, okay, you're not, you're still far from normal revenue. And you're paying your bills, like your rent, and you're, you know, you've got some help maybe with the wage subsidy on your, on your, uh, on your staffing uh, side. But that's why uh, businesses are saying just to get back to normal profitability, so that their sales cover their costs right. and give them a little bit to take home. Um, the vast majority are saying at least six months, and you know, a third are saying more than a year. And some saying we just don't know if we're ever going to get back to, to profitability. Our numbers are also showing that about uh, 15% of business owners are actively considering uh, winding down uh, their businesses or declaring uh, bankruptcy. So I think you're going to see, you know, more businesses. Most Canadians know, already know in their community, a business that hasn't, you know, that that, that has has had to wind down because of the COVID crisis. Um, And we're going to see more of that. But the message I want to leave your listeners with as well is that each of us as individuals has a role to play because collectively we can make a big difference if we make an effort to support those local businesses, mm-hmm. the businesses like the ones from Tofino that you had on earlier. And exactly. interestingly enough, my husband, my husband and I were just saying, where can we take a short uh, little, you know, local vacation and Tofino was on our list. Um, so we'll be sure to, 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 to visit those businesses. Um, but those are the things we can do, and they don't have to be 
big efforts. They can just be a little extra effort to shop local. And we've got a great campaign that highlights some things that can make it kind of even um, maybe cost effective for you to do that. We've got this smallbusinesseveryday.ca website, and there's 23 different campaigns. Right now, for example, Royal Bank, um, you can get two times your points if you're uh, using your, your, your points at a local um, restaurant or a local retailer. Um, and lots of big businesses are doing things uh, to help small businesses get through this. And we profiled them all in one easy uh, spot. So I would suggest people check that out, uh, smallbusinesseveryday.ca. Promote your favorite businesses online. Uh, use the hashtag smallbusinesseveryday. Uh, and, you know, just really make that extra effort because collectively we can make a difference here and governments need to do more. But as individuals, we ha- we're not powerless. Uh, in this economic recovery. Yeah, it's a good website, too. I'm on it right now, smallbusinesseveryday.ca. Wanted to talk to you a little bit about the CERB and staffing issues, and this is wage subsidies aside. We're now starting to hear examples, anecdotal stuff at this point, you would hear more than we do, of, of employers uh, trying to reopen, trying to recall staff members, perhaps on a part-time basis to get the ball rolling, etc., and being told in some cases, certainly not all, but being told in some cases, no, I think I'm just going to take the summer off. I'm on the CERB. I'm going to make more money for sure. And you were talking about certainty earlier. The CERB provides me with a degree of certainty right now that you, my former employer, can't. Uh, You hearing that too? Yes. So the CERB um, program is, you know, has been a very important piece, obviously, to make sure that uh, people can, um, you know, can stay home and look after their kids um, if they don't have a job. Um, And it's been important for some business owners, too, who were completely uh, shut down and were were relying on it. $2,000 a month uh, uh, benefit. And um, and there was an adjustment made so that you can earn up to $1,000 on on CERB to try to you know, create this incentive and also for, for business owners who were on it so they could get a little bit of income coming in. And so what we're saying now with service, like we need to continue to shift it so that the incentives are aligned to getting back to work. Um, right now, if you make more than $1,000, you know, you lose your serve benefit. That's right. And so that's, that's proven to be a bit of a strong uh, disincentive in some cases mm-hmm. to get back to work. So what we're hearing from business owners is exactly some of what you said that, that, you know, in some cases people still need it. And so I want to be clear, that's not what we're, what we're, you know, we're being critical of, but there are some cases where, where people would just prefer to be on serve. Their right. job is there. And so we're, we're, We've been talking to, to, to government and we've been suggesting that we move it more towards what EI um, uh, looks like so right. that you have to be looking, actively looking for a job and accept a reasonable offer um, in order to be eligible for the program. Um, we've also been talking about graduate it so that you can earn more than $1,000 um, as you go back to work and that, that that incentive doesn't, it's just not all or nothing. Like once you earn $1,001, you get none of your $2,000 benefits. Exactly. So claw it back kind of slowly. And those things, again, I think it's all about creating the incentives to work, both for businesses and for individuals um, with these programs and not and trying to minimize, you're never going to eliminate it entirely, but trying to minimize the the incentive to kind of, um, for lack of better words here, kind of, you know, play the system a little bit. Right. And, you know, of course, incentives matter and people are worried about their future. I, I, I'm not being critical of people who are trying to kind of maximize what, what it is they're doing. Um, but at the same time, we need to we need to we need we need to all shift back and, and get back to work. 
It's all about customer support. For If you're a small business person, it's getting those people in the store and making sure they leave with some stuff and a smile on their face and a desire to return, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, this, this you know, <laughs> small businesses are the last ones to the world feel so upside down to me. I've said this before, but, you know, Typically on our surveys, what do businesses want government to do? Just stay out of their way, keep mm-hmm. taxes low, keep That's regulation right. reasonable. But right now they need sales. So customers, get out there and please support your favorite small businesses. They need you. They need to get off subsidies and get back to sales. All right, Laura, thank you for this. We always appreciate having an update and the very latest numbers, too. It's, it's a joy to have you aboard again. Oh, thanks so much for having CFIB on. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Smallbusinesseveryday.ca is the uh, website that Laura recommended. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.